As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast, the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. If you've been listening to the last few episodes, you'll know that we're taking a little break from our regular series with Alistair McGrath to bring you some bonus content from other thinkers. This programme is the second of two episodes where we'll hear a panel of young people from Woking United Reformed Church in Surrey ask their questions to noted Narnia expert Michael Ward. It was recorded at Trinity College, Oxford University and was chaired by Justin Brightley. Like Lewis himself, Michael is based at Oxford University where he is a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion. He also teaches online for the Master's Programme in Christian Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Don't forget to check out premierunbelievable.com for bonus content as well as a free ebook. For now, it's over to Justin and Michael. Someone's got a question about, oh, I think, Robert, yours is the next question about uh, the in-between place. Yes. Yeah, um, so where, um, how was the in-between world created? So this is the world, sometimes called the, called the wood between the worlds, yeah. isn't it? And it's in, the, it's in the magician's nephew, and it's a place where, when, is it when you put the rings on, they take you to the wood between the worlds? Yes, that's right. There's this sort of, um, what would you call it, a... A sorting place, uh, uh, like like when you apply to Oxford, <laughs> and you you you, um, you want to come to Trinity College, but you end up at Balliol. <laughs> <laughs> oh <dear me. laughs> um, if if Trinity say that they don't want you, then they throw you into what's called the pool. Was it called the pool in your name? Well, funnily enough, this is what happened to Lucy, my oh, wife. Oh right. So you originally applied to Oriel, I think. Yes. Uh, but you were put into a pool, and. Trinity fished you out. Yes. yes. So that, that, that pool is a kind of place where you could find your way to any other Oxford college. And likewise, the wood between the worlds in The Magician's Nephew is, a, is an in-between kind of place. It, it's not a world in its own right. It just gives access to other worlds. And you, you dive into pools, as it were. Mm. Uh, this is what brought it to mind, um, this analogy. And you go down into the pool and re-emerge in Narnia or charm as it may be um, and there are any number of what well, there seems to be uh, there seems to be the suggestion that there's an infinite number of worlds that, that that the wood and its pools give you access to but as to who made it we're not told who made it but presumably Aslan made it um, because Aslan is is the divine ruler of, of this whole sub-created imagined world that C.S. Lewis is giving us um, and I, I, I think 
there's a, some sort of picture or diagram, maybe it was Lewis's, maybe it was Pauline Baines's, maybe it was somebody else, in which the wood between the worlds is actually situated in Aslan's country. Mm. But I'm not entirely clear about that. S- follow-up question. Some people think that there might be multiple universes out there. Mm. Do you think that Lewis had that in mind? Was he thinking about parallel universes, multiverses, when he imagined the, the wood between the worlds and all these different worlds you could go to? Uh, possibly, yes. He was quite interested in multidimensionality and, and the relation between time and space. That, that features a little bit in some of his own interplanetary novels, Perilandra, for instance. And he read quite a lot of uh, f- f- physics and cosmology on these sorts of questions. Uh, James Jeans and Arthur Eddington and, and other astronomers and people like that. Um, so that might have been something that he was sort of gesturing towards with the, with the wood between the worlds, yes. Hmm. You've got a question over here, haven't you? Can people in Narnia enter our world? Okay, can people come the other way, Michael, mm. and enter our world? Can people from Narnia enter our world? Well, um, at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Caspian says, uh, as the English children are preparing to depart for England, um, he says, why is it that you can come to us but we can't go to you? Um, and that's just a question he asks. Um, and we're not entirely clear that that is, in fact, the case. Um, he's just assuming that he can't get to England. Um, but at the end of The Silver Chair, after this same Caspian character has grown up and died and gone to Aslan's country, um, then the resurrected Caspian does actually manage to get into England. And you may remember he goes with um, Eustace and Jill and they, they burst through into, into this experiment house, this terrible school where, where all the bullies are running rampant. Uh, and they, they take the flat of their swords and they beat the, these bullies and give them a taste of their own medicine. Uh, and Caspian, the resurrected Caspian, that's one of the things that he gets to do in his, in his heavenly life, um, which is <laughs> interesting. <laughs> uh, so he does manage to get into England. Um, but... But he's in a slightly different category because he's lived and died in Narnia and now is in a, uh, in a heavenly realm. Uh, so that may be why he, at that point in his story, can get in to England but couldn't beforehand. And, of course, in The Magician's Nephew, the White Witch comes into London, doesn't she? Well, that's true, yes. So, but then she hasn't exactly come from Narnia. No, so. exactly. Yeah, she's come from Charn. Um, this kingdom that she has blasted into smithereens with the deplorable word that she has uttered. And yes, she comes to London and wreaks havoc in London. Um, But yes, she hasn't come from Narnia. But she then goes to Narnia Mm. with uh, Diggory and Polly. Okay. Before we come back to the White Witch, because there's a question about that, I've got a technical question here from Jeremy. If two people are going through the wardrobe to Narnia, one looking for it and one not, then what would happen? So this is based on the fact that Jeremy thinks that you can only find Narnia if you aren't looking for it. But what if two people went into the wardrobe, one looking for Narnia, one not looking for Narnia? Would they both get in? Would only one of them get in? What's your theory, Michael? <laughs> well, I don't know, because that's, that's a hypothetical question. And I don't think we're given enough information by C.S. Lewis to answer it, I'm afraid. 
Um, I'm not sure, though, that I would agree with the principle that you only find Narnia if you're not looking for it. Mm -hmm. Now, it is true that sometimes when people are looking for Narnia, they don't find it. Uh, so when in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy comes back from Narnia all excited and tells her sister and brothers, there's a magic world behind the, Narnia, behind the wardrobe, and they, they all tumble into the wardrobe, and Peter goes and knocks on the back of it, and it's just solid wood, and he can't get through. So that it's true on, on that occasion that they seek Narnia but do not find it. But I don't think that's a universalizable principle because um, in the silver chair, you remember, that starts with Eustace and Jill wanting to get to Narnia very much. And they discuss how, how could we get to Narnia and, and Jill, suge Jill suggests possibly you know, writing circles on the on the ground and uttering strange incantations and and Eustace says well I don't think Aslan would like that um, that would suggest that we could make him do things um, but nonetheless they do ask they sort of hold out their hands and as it were pray um, or express a longing that, that they could get to Narnia and that longing is um, successful because very soon, by the end of that chapter, they are there in Aslan's country. Mm. Um, but then there's this little interesting exchange between Jill and Aslan, um, where uh, Jill says, well, we weren't summoned, we asked to come here. And Aslan says, you would not have been asking to come to me unless I had been asking you to come myself, or words to that effect. Um, so it's quite complicated, actually. Mm. Uh, you might try to get to Narnia and fail. You might try and succeed. But even if you succeed, it's only because Aslan wants you to come himself. Mm. There are wow. lots of in interesting theological that's, yeah, things that's going very on. very deep, there. isn't it? Yes. Well, okay. So someone's got a question about the White Witch, I think. Who's got a question about the White Witch? How did the witch originally get power over Narnia? Hmm. Yes, because when we start The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it's obviously winter, mm. never Christmas, the witch is ruling, but how did she get in that position in the first place? Yes, well, the White Witch is uh, Jadis, that's her name, and we're introduced to her in The Magician's Nephew. Um, she has been a, a queen of another country called Charn, which she has obliterated. She's annihilated with a kind of nuclear bomb, as it were. She's brought death to every living thing in Charn. Um, and then, by a strange set of circumstances, she's, she ends up in Narnia because of what Diggory did to Polly in, in an early chapter in The Magician's Nephew. And uh, she turns up with Diggory and Polly on the day of Narnia's birth, um, and this son of Adam, Diggory, has, has brought an evil into Narnia on the very day that it's being created. An evil. A evil? No, he didn't say an evil. He said an evil. A weevil? <laughs> and this is what the, the animals say. They can't understand what evil is. Um, but she is indeed a terrible evil. Um, and a tree of protection is planted so as to keep her away from Narnia. And she goes up to the north country and, and hides there for many years. Um, and Aslan says, we will, we will plant this tree of protection so, that, so as to keep the evil off, so that Narnia will have a long, bright morning before any clouds come over the sun. Um, but eventually the tree of protection dies, 
um, and this is in about the year 900, I think, in Narnian history. And then, with the protection gone, she's able to come back down from the north and, and gradually achieve power and bring her kingdom of ice and snow uh, from the north and, and petrify everything in this everlasting winter. Well, it, it, we're told it's been going on for 100 years by the time of the start of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm. Um, so that's how she got there and how she acquired her power. But, of course, that's not the end of the story, as we know. And I've got another question here. I think it's from you, Amelia. Um, and it's, it's about how Aslan, you know, brought spring again to, to, to Narnia. And that, of course, happened through his death and his resurrection, but you've got a question, a hypothetical question here, Amelia. What would have happened if Tanania, if Aslan stayed dead? What would have happened if Aslan had stayed dead? Hmm. Well, that is, that is another hypothetical question, which is very hard to answer because um, we're not really told. We can really only, I think, just assume that the same sort of thing would have happened to Narnia as would have happened in our world if Jesus had remained dead. Jesus dies on the cross on, the good, on Good Friday and is in the tomb over Holy Saturday and then rises from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. Um, but if he had not risen from the dead, then our faith would have been in vain, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, if Christ has not been raised, then nobody can be raised. Um, we are still in our sins. Um, so presumably the same thing would have happened in Narnia if Aslan had not come back to life um, with the rising of the sun the following morning on the stone table. Then Narnia would have been forever lost to the power of the White Witch. But that's really just a guess. That's a, an extrapolation from what we know about this world to the Narnian world. But that's a fair that's a fair extrapolation to make because, of course, Aslan and Jesus are, are meant to be the same character, effectively. It's just that Jesus, when he appears in Narnia, takes on the form of a lion. B, I think you've got a question. Um, do you think that there are any underlying messages throughout Narnia? Hmm. Well, take your pick, I suppose, <laughs> isn't it, Michael? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Do you want to ex oh, expand I see, right. <laughs> on, on, on what those might oh, be? I, see, I mean, you've right. already told us about this amazing <laughs> secret you kind of unraveled of the planetary scheme across the books. I mean, I guess that's just one of a number of different types of themes that Lewis wove into the books, isn't it? Yes, there are any number of underlying messages, really. Um, I've already just talked about how Jesus and Aslan are a little bit alike, and so you can... You can trace out some of those parallels and, and unearth that sort of scheme. Um, you know, in The Magician's Nephew, Aslan creates Narnia, just as God, through the word of Christ, summons our world into being. In uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan dies and rises for the sake of a, of a traitor, just as Jesus dies and rises for the sake of all mankind. In The Last Battle, Aslan judges Narnia and brings it to an end in a sort of Narnian equivalent of the book of Revelation and the final apocalypse, the day of judgment. So there are biblical parallels, fairly clear biblical parallels, in, especially in those three books, and indeed in all seven. But what I've discovered with, the, with this planetary scheme is that really the, 
the biblical imagery is much more uh, subtle and sophisticated. It, we're, we're not just invited to think that Aslan is a bit like Jesus. Um, rather, Lewis has taken these seven spiritual symbols, which are the moon and the sun, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Mercury, and Saturn. Those are the seven planets. Uh, and each planet has its own characteristics and attributes and qualities. And C.S. Lewis takes those qualities and uses them to, to express any number of, of spiritual and religious uh, and moral themes. So, for instance, in we'll just talk about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That's Lewis's Jupiter story, because Jupiter, symbolically, according to the, middle, the people in the Middle Ages, was the king. That's, that's the main quality of Jupiter. Kingliness, mon, the, all things monarchical and regal and royal. Which is why, in, when the children first go into the wardrobe and they put on the fur coats, we're told the fur coats looked more like royal robes than coats when they put them on. And that's an indication of where the story is going to end up, when all the children are crowned king and queen of Narnia. And Aslan himself is, is himself described repeatedly as the king, royal. He's got all these royal accoutrements, like royal pavilions and standards and crowns. And once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. Once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia. All that royal imagery which you might just think is a standard feature of, of a fairy tale, is actually there because it's part of the Jupiter theme that the whole book is designed to express. I mentioned that when I was halfway through my PhD, I was lying in bed one night reading Lewis's poem about the planets. And it was when I got to the lines about Jupiter that I was suddenly tipped off that there might be a link to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Because according to this poem, one of the things that Jupiter brings about is winter past and guilt forgiven. That's another of the jovial influences. Jove is another name for Jupiter. And so the, the jovial power, as it were, the jovial influence, um, brings about the passing of winter and the forgiving of guilt. And that's a very good description of what happens in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, isn't it? With the passing of the White Witch's winter and the forgiving of Edmund's guilt. That, as well as all the royal imagery, is part of what Lewis is trying to express through this Jupiter imagery. And and of course, the heavens are telling the glory of God, according to the psalm. Psalm 19, which C.S. Lewis regarded as the greatest poem in the book of Psalms. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And we read that and we think, oh yes, they tell the glory of God just by being high and magnificent and beautiful on a starry night. And that's true, of course. But then there's this long tradition that individual stars and planets have particular qualities and in influences and that's what Lewis is trying to get at that they they're telling the glory of God in very particular ways um, so Jupiter in the lion the witch and the wardrobe uh, expresses the glory of God in one way and then Mars in Prince Caspian expresses it in another way through through the idea of the Christian life as a battle uh, fight the good fight, put on the, the whole armour of Christ, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, that kind of imagery. And then in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where the image is that of the sun, we have solar imagery. Think of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Think of the sun of righteousness rising in your hearts. All that kind of biblical imagery too is there in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
and so on through all seven books. So it's still a very biblical set of underlying messages, but it's not just obvious one-to-one links between Aslan and Jesus. It's much more deep-rooted. It's sort of woven into the, the, the DNA of the books at a much more sort of genetic level. Mm. Okay, so we've just got a couple more questions to finish off with. Um, Libby, let's hear your one first of all. Is Narnia similar to something C.S. Lewis experienced as a, as a child? And you've got a question too, Eve. How did C.S. Lewis come up with the concept of Narnia? I felt like these are two slightly related questions. Mm. So, yeah, did he experience something like Narnia as a child and how did he come up with the concept for the books? Well, um, did he experience something like Narnia? Um, Well, (laughs) of course, Narnia is fictional. Um, So we need to look at the fiction, the books that C.S. Lewis himself read, if we want to find uh, something close to a similar sort of experience that he might have had as a child. And there are any number of stories, fables, myths, legends, uh, fairy tales that he read growing up and indeed into his adulthood because he was always voracious for for every kind of literature throughout his life. Um, I think probably the the biggest sort of literary influence, the, 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 the sorts of stories that he experienced growing up that are most similar to Narnia are, are probably the, the poems of, um, of Edmund Spencer, a 16th century poet who was a contemporary with Shakespeare. And Lewis loved the writings of Edmund Spencer. And that sort of magical world with knights and damsels and, and adventures and dragons is, is very similar in many ways to Narnia. So that might be one way of answering your question. If you're looking for real-world uh, things that he experienced, which, which, might, which he might have taken into Narnia with him, he did say once that he, he was very fond of, the, of Carlingford Loch and the Carlingford Mountains in Ireland. He grew up in Northern Ireland, and Carlingford Loch is, is just between the north and the south of Ireland. And, and the beauty of, of that mountainous landscape and the, and the sea is, is perhaps a little bit like what we find in Narnia. Um, but of course, Lewis saw many different kinds of landscape, and, and he never said that Narnia was exactly based on any particular place. So I think you know, any 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 place that he liked and found beautiful might might have found its way into some one or other of the of the chronicles. It's, it's, it's a very mysterious process by which you know, an author creates a, an imagined world and all sorts of things get thrown into the pot, as it were, and simmer and, and give off smells and boil down into something new. Um, but to answer the other question about what gave Lewis the immediate inspiration, or was, was that the phrasing? Yeah, so yeah. What, what, how did he come up with the concept? Yeah, how did he come up with it? Well, he said um, it all began with a picture, he wrote an article, I think, for the Radio Times, in which he was trying to explain in, in very short compass what it was that inspired him. And he said, it all began with a picture that had been in my mind's eye since I was about 16, a picture of a fawn in a snowy wood carrying parcels and an, and an umbrella. And one day, he said to himself, when I was about 50, um, let's make a story about it. And... So that picture of the fawn in the snowy wood carrying parcels 
uh, was the germ that that gradually grew in, into the whole of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and then into the entire seven book series. Well, that is all we've time for, I'm afraid. There were more questions, but we've, we've had a wonderful set of answers to the ones we could get to today. Can we give a round of applause for Michael? And do remember, if you want to find out more about some of the amazing things Michael has discovered about Narnia, The Narnia Code is one book you could read. There's also an even bigger, uh, more academic book called Planet Narnia as well out there. And there's even a a video series on it as well. Um, But uh, for now, thank you very much, Michael, for being our special guest on this uh, Young People's Questions edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Justin. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on so that other people can find us too. Next week, we're going to be hearing a really interesting debate between an atheist and a Christian. Holly Ordway grew up an atheist before converting to Christianity in her adult years. The fantasy work of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were an important part of her journey to faith. She'll be engaging with atheist writer Laura Miller, author of The Magician's Book, A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia. For more from the show and to register for bonus content, a free ebook, and our regular updates, visit premierunbelievable.com. See you next time.